There are situations that are so devastating that all I can do is pray, Lord Jesus, have mercy. I didn't expect this to hit me so hard today. And for some, this story hits really close to home. For others, you just feel empathy and compassion for this family and what they've walked through. And I found myself longing so badly for a neat and tidy bow to wrap this all up, a happy ever after to end this story with, but right now there really isn't. In the portrait series, we've been exploring the distortions that blur our vision of who God is. And today's distortion is the one that hits the closest to home. This is the distortion that says, God protects us from all suffering. And these experiences of suffering, like we saw with Nikki's video, can't help but bring up questions for us. What do we do when God doesn't act the way we want him to? When he doesn't show up with a miracle? Today we're going to start with suffering, but then we're going to look at what it means to enter into the tension, and then finally to enter into companionship, ultimately landing in this truth that God and Christ is with us, he's present with us in our pain and our suffering. But first though, what happens when suffering enters the picture? The truck sped off, the police jumped back in the car in pursuit. I was in the backseat of the police car in shock. Not sure what to say or do except to pray. Just minutes ago, I thought my family member was dead. But now he was alive and leading the police on a car chase. And I was in the first squad car in pursuit. Depression's a familiar experience for my family members. It's almost a legacy. Except for us, depression meant moodiness and not being able to get out of bed. It never meant a car chase until that night. And just like an hour before, everything had been normal, everything had been fine, and my phone rang, and I learned that this family member was trying to take their life. And I jumped into action, I ran over to my family's house, they were minutes away. I knew this person struggled with depression, I knew he'd been off his meds, and I knew he was searching for a gun. And so I knew that the clock was ticking, And so I raced over to do something, to stop him, to save his life. And when I got to my family's house, we didn't know where he was, but his car was gone. And so I started driving around the neighborhood trying to find him. And along the way, I bumped into the police who said, yeah, you can search for him, but if you find him, you shouldn't approach him. And so I was driving, and within minutes, I heard God say so clearly, you're going to find him. I turned the corner and there was his car. Then the clock starts ticking even faster, because it's like, okay, we might be able to save him. So I speed back home, I find the police, and as the adrenaline's coursing through my body, I try to explain where his truck is. And finally, the the officer just says, get in the back of my car, I'll take you there. We get there, he exits his vehicle, knocks on the window, and a head pops up. He's alive. And there's such a moment of relief for that second to know that he's alive, he's not dead. But then he starts to drive off. And it all happens so fast. The officer's back in the car, we start driving after him, there's another car there, and soon there's a trail of police cars. 
As my family member turns out of the housing track, he starts gaining speed, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. And we're matching him mile for mile, and I'm in the first car in pursuit. And all I could do was pray, Lord, have mercy. I was texting my family because somehow I was also very responsible and like giving them updates. But I didn't know what was going to happen, but I thought I might watch this family member die that night. Somehow, the chase ended without any injuries. I still don't know why or how that happened. Um, the only thing injured or destroyed was my, my family member's car. And he was taken to the hospital. And it all starts to kind of wash over me of what just happened. And I was sitting there waiting for his truck to be towed. And the police officer was sitting next to me. And he was, I could tell he was feeling uncomfortable. And he didn't know what to say. And he looked over at me, and I'll never forget these words. He said, at least it must have been fun to drive that fast. <laughs> and it took everything in me to like, not throttle him or yell at him. I just kind of went, you know, that wasn't going through my mind. Uh, but thank you. <laughs> and so my family member was alive. And we waited at the hospital And almost immediately, I had this thought that it's going to be all right. We'll get him back on the right meds, and this will just be a blip in the past. We'll get over this. Well, that wasn't what happened. Because finding the right meds doesn't happen overnight a lot of times. And my family member continued to try to take his life, although not in as extreme methods as a car chase. And my family would call me at night asking for help on what to do. What do we do? What do we say? And I, I was a leader in the church, and so I kept thinking, I can be pastoral support for my family. And as I say that, I know that sounds ridiculous, but in that moment, I thought that was supposed to be my role. I was supposed to lead my family into, you know, joy. And I was quickly discovering that I needed help, too, because I wasn't doing so well. And then right in the midst of this, in the midst of hospital stays uh, at the mental hospital for my family member, my grandfather died. And he died kind of, it's the way we all want to go. He went to sleep and never woke up again. But the timing of it was so painful for us because he lived with my parents and we were dealing with so much already with my family member. And it was like, this is the last thing we needed. And then there was issues with the inheritance in my mom's family, and everything just felt like more and more, we can't handle anymore. Why are you putting more on us, God? And finally, it was at that point where I hit my breaking point. I tried to go to sleep one night, and I couldn't. The next night, same thing. And anxiety was flooding my body because this trauma I'd tried to shove down I tried to be like this good Christian, the pastoral support for my family, but my body wasn't letting me ignore it anymore. And so I quickly realized I needed help because not sleeping at night and panic attacks and fear over the phone ringing is not a good way to live life. And so that took me to therapy, which was a big gift for me. But also what was coming up for me more than just this trauma were these questions God, why are you letting this happen to my family? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you intervening? And I was realizing really quickly, I didn't have any promises that my family member would survive. And I didn't know what to do with that. 
before this suicide attempt, I had, you guys, such a neat and tidy theology for why suffering happened in the world. And I could tell you it really quickly and easily with no emotion and a smile on my face. And then suffering barged in my front door. And those theologies were no comfort to me. My response was anger at God. I couldn't understand why he was letting this happen. And I was still praying, but, and someone asked me once what my prayer life was like at that time, and I was really blunt and said, my prayer life is me in my car yelling at God. Furious, like, you know, redheads, we get angry. Um, but I was just like, God, like, where are you? What are you doing? Why have you abandoned us? And if we go to our verse for today, Psalm 22, David similarly has this very raw and unfiltered prayer to God. If you want to read with me, we're in Psalm 22, verses 1 to 2. And I'll just say real quick, I hate when we read the Psalms with spa voice, you know, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When David wasn't saying it like that, right? So I'm going to try to embrace some of that emotion behind this passage. Uh, but you know what I mean when I say spa voice? Yeah. <sighs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. David suffered in his life. Yeah, he was king, and I'm sure that had some nice perks. But he suffered. He had a father figure in Saul who betrayed him. And because of his betrayal, he had to run for his life. He had to pretend to be insane. He suffered. And in later life, in life, his beloved son, Absalom, rebelled and was killed in the process. So even this man, a man after God's own heart, suffered. And if we look at the Bible, it's not just David. We see Job a man who lived wisely, followed after God, and lost everything in moments. We see Paul, who wrote a significant chunk of the, Old Te- or the New Testament, who was like constantly on the verge of death, who was imprisoned, who had a mystery illness that never went away, and was eventually killed for his beliefs. Jesus' disciples suffered really awful deaths, too. So the Bible is full of suffering. And I had read my Bible, you guys, but... Still, I never expected to suffer in the ways in which I did. My suffering revealed in me this distortion, this one that expected Jesus to protect me from all suffering. And so the question is, how do we end up believing this distortion? Because it's not just me, right? I think we all can resonate with that. And here's the deal. The theology in my head was very different than the theology that I was living out. You know, we can claim to adhere to all sorts of theologies and beliefs, but the ones you really believe are the ones you live out, and ultimately, the ones that matter the most. You know, I might believe in a theology of loving my neighbor, but if I show up every day at my coffee shop and yell at my barista, something's out of alignment. And if you're wondering what your, your lived-out theology is, a great person to tell you that is a spouse, a family member, someone who lives with you, because they see what your, your real theology is.
And so for me, I was under this quid pro quo sort of um, belief system. You know, because at the time, I was this very well-behaved young woman. I was active in my church. I didn't get drunk. I didn't sleep around. I lived wisely. And so in my distorted way of thinking, this meant I was protected from suffering. But I think we actually fall into one of two distortions. Um, and they both start from this posture, or they either start from this posture of believing all good things are coming to me or all bad things are coming to me. This sort of pessimism versus optimism. And under the all good things side, when we believe only goodness will come our way, the distortion is that God is protecting me from all harm because that's just who he is, is and he does that. Or I've been protected because I behave correctly. And what's tricky is that there's shades of truth here. Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The book of Proverbs is full of pithy statements on the results of wise living, championing the ideas that you reap what you sow. And there's truth there. But there's more to the story. And the most prominent form of this belief is seen in the prosperity gospel, which says that God rewards and blesses us for our faithfulness all the time. And this is twisting verses like Deuteronomy 28, which say, um, that talk about God blessing Israel for their obedience. And the expectation under prosperity gospel is that there will always be provision, which is usually material wealth and comfort, for those who really trust God. So if you're suffering, the inference here is that you don't really believe or you're not faithful enough. That's a bit problematic. But on the other side, we have expecting all bad to come our way. And here, there's this underlying belief that God is apathetic or God isn't capable. These tend to be more experientially based. And I'm sure we've all experienced moments when we wonder where God is. God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Do you even care? And there's times when we're disappointed by God, and this can shape us, this can form us to where we just expect another bad thing, or when's the next shoe going to drop? And this isn't the whole story, though. But it's easy to get stuck in this belief when we have experiences of God not showing up how we expect him to. The reality is both sides of the spectrum are an attempt to control. Because either side contains some bits of truth, but it's easier to embrace one half rather than sit in the messy middle. When we do this, we're attempting to control a world we're not in control of, because we're not God. Kate Bowler, a historian whose research is on the prosperity gospel, she was confronted with her own distortion, her own form of the prosperity gospel when she was diagnosed in her mid-30s with stage 4 cancer. The first words out of her mouth were, but I have a son. And she wrote this really fantastic book about her experience called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, which is such a great book title. It's also a really great book too, but I just think that's such... That's just such a perfect title. But when talking about this desire for control, she says, control is a drug, and we are all hooked. Whether or not we believe in the prosperity gospel's assurance that we can master the future with our words and attitudes. And control is such a tempting drug. You know, because if we're not controlling, we're opening our hands, we're releasing control, and we're having to trust that God will be there. And that's hard because it brings up so many what-if questions. It brings up our past. We're tempted to exert, uh, we attempt to exert control by either avoiding the reality of pain 
or to just fully immerse ourselves in the pain. Or sometimes we bounce back and forth between the two places, like all pain, no pain, all pain, no pain. And that's exhausting. And here's the big problem, is that these half-truths don't allow for the whole story. We see a distorted view of reality, which isn't reality itself. Instead, we're called to hold the goodness and painfulness together. We're to hold it in tension. Um, I'm a big Harry Potter fan, and so, spoiler, spoiler alert, I'm going to give away some Harry Potter plot points. So, if you need to cover your ears or walk out, just know that. In the end of the sixth book, Severus Snape kills Dumbledore. And I was furious. I was sitting there and I complained to my friend, like, I saw this coming. Harry knew. Harry was telling everyone, why did no one listen to Harry? And now Dumbledore's dead. And that colors how you receive this story. And you make these inferences about who Snape is and how things are going to turn out. And then I read book seven. And in book seven, in this pivotal moment, you get to see, uh, Harry gets to see all of Snape's memories right before he dies. And he comes to realize that from the day Harry was born, Snape has been working to protect him. And that when, Dumbledore, when he killed Dumbledore, Dumbledore was already dying, and Snape was deeply embedded as a spy in the Dark Lord's army. And so he had to keep up his cover. But because he did, Harry and his friends were able to win. Good triumph, triumph over evil. And that resonated so much with Harry that by the end of the series, when he's all grown up and has a family, he names his one son Albus Severus. Albus for Albus Dumbledore, this great mentor of his, and Severus for Severus Snape, this man who he hated for most of his life until he saw the whole story. So to view the whole story in light of one part distorts the message. So we also have to ask, what's the whole story? The Bible's broken up into different genres. So how you read a book like Genesis, which is a historical narrative book, is really different than how you're going to read a prophetic book like Isaiah. And right in the middle of the Bible, you have wisdom literature, which includes Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, depending on your translation. Um, I feel really old when I call it Song of Solomon, because I think Song of Songs is the cool way now, but... uh, Anyways, whatever you call it, it's there. It's wisdom literature. And Proverbs is this great book of instruction. And it's kind of geared towards younger people as well because it's kind of got this rhyme structure going on that makes these, um, these words of wisdom easier to remember. And it just you know, kind of gives you this roadmap to a wise life, a good life. And that sounds wonderful. Like, if I just do these things life will turn out well for me. And there's some truth there. Like, it's good to live a wise life, and that will serve you well. But then right around the corner, we have the book of Job. And Job's problematic for us because Job had read Proverbs. He lived wisely. He did the right things. And then, in one fell swoop, he loses just about everything. And so the bigger story here when we sit with both of these books in hand is that you may live wisely and that can serve you well, but suffering still may come. And some suffering is a result of our choices, but a lot of times suffering is outside of our will. It's, sometimes it's persecution for our beliefs, it can be spiritual warfare, it can be due to political issues, socioeconomic, 
and other factors, and we may or may not be aware of all of them. And what's so uncomfortable, because it's so uncomfortable because our temptations to embrace one book and avoid the other, and especially when it comes to Job and Proverbs, it's so much easier to sit with Proverbs than to sit with the messiness of Job. But we're asked to hold both, to sit in the places that seem in tension with each other. And this is true of the entire Bible, because when we read one verse or chapter or book, it's supposed to be read in light of the entire book. And this idea of tension doesn't stop with the Old Testament because we see this in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Listen to these words from Christ in John 10.10. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Some translations say abundantly. And that sounds good, right? Abundant life, like life with Jesus, that sounds great. And we probably have some expectations of what abundant life means. They probably don't include what Jesus is talking about in Luke 9, 23 to 24. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So we sit in this tension point, this cross-section of these two verses. On one hand, abundant life. On the other hand, via the cross. And it's hard to sit here because it's easier to believe that everything's going to be joyful and abundant. Or it's easier to believe every day I'm walking with my cross. It's harder to sit with the truth that suffering happens and God is with us. Because when we sit in the places of tension, we realize A, we don't have control, but B, we might not have answers to the questions. The questions that so naturally come up when we suffer, like the questions David had in Psalm 22. And I wish, I wish I had answers to address all the suffering in our world. And I don't. I have suspicions on what may or may not be happening. But the longer I live... And the more pain I see, the more pain I experience, the less I trust in my ability to offer simple answers to complex situations. My family member survived. That's the good news in this story, or at least my story, is that my family member is still alive to this day and is thriving. I don't know why. I used to work for Saddleback Church, and when I was on staff there, Rick and Kay Warren lost their son Matthew to suicide. I don't know why my family member lives and Matthew didn't. My questions themselves leave me in a tension, a tension which may never be resolved on this side of life. And again, if we look to the Bible, there are just as many who suffered um, who also were left without answers or without resolution, because there's Abraham, who was, God promised this covenant to him, and he didn't see it come to its full fruition. We have David, who wanted to build this temple for God, who never saw it being built. Job, who maybe didn't receive the answers he wanted from God at the end of his suffering. There's Leah, who never received the love she wanted from her husband, even though she bore him all those sons. And I resonate with Kate Bowler's description of this lack of resolution, She says, I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, 
except that I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I see a middle-aged woman in the waiting room of the cancer clinic, her arms wrapped around the frail frame of her son. She squeezes him tightly, oblivious to the ways he looks down at her sheepishly. He laughs after a minute, a hostage to her impervious love. Joy persists somehow, and I soak it in. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. And we see from this quote, we see from our lives that it is possible to sit in the tension. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what makes it possible for us to sit in, sit in these places of tension, these places without immediate resolution? We're going to jump back to Psalm 22. And I'm actually going to read this out of the message because I like how Eugene Peterson captures it in this translation. And here I am, a nothing, an earthworm, something to step on, to squash. Everyone pokes fun at me. They make faces at me. They shake their heads. Let's see how God handles this one. Since God likes him so much, let him help him. And to think, you were midwife at my birth, setting me at my mother's breasts. When I left the womb, you cradled me. Since the moment of birth, you've been my God. Then you moved far away, and trouble moved in next door. I need a neighbor. We need a neighbor, friends. We need presence. I can't pinpoint the moment, but eventually my anger at God quieted. I started to see how much God had been present with me. He didn't fix everything with a snap of his fingers. But he didn't leave me. No matter how much I yelled at him, and you guys, I yelled at him a lot. Like, if I had done this to anyone in my life, they would have abandoned me. But God did not abandon me. That's good news. And the year before this all took place, this suicide attempt, I was living in England, and it was hard being away from my family and friends for that long, and I was feeling really lonely And so I kept returning to Psalm 23, specifically verse 24. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And I would just repeat that over and over again. You are with me, God. You are with me. And that brought comfort to me in the times where I felt so alone and so abandoned. And these words, this idea was comforting to David, God's presence was a comfort to him, but why? So if you've gone through some hard times, you probably have some stories of someone who's really well-intentioned to try to comfort you, gives words that are not that comforting. You know, everything happens for a reason. God doesn't close a door without opening a window. He never gives you more than you can bear. Or uh, the, probably one of the worst ones, God needed another angel up in heaven. Oh, yeah. And if you've received those before, everything in you is just like, ah, you don't get what's going on here. Um, And you bite your tongue and you smile because the person's not doing this intentionally, but it still hurts. It's like a knife in the heart. And uh, there's a line of cards from Emily McDowell called Empathy Cards 
and I have a picture of one of them. Uh, and these cards just melt my heart because someone gets it. Yeah, so please let me be the first to punch the next person who tells you everything happens for a reason. I'm sorry you're going through this. Um, there's some other great cards from this line, but they have some strong language in it. So I thought this is the good one. This is the best one. <laughs> but in our suffering, we need someone who gets it. Someone who's going to send us a card like this. Someone who's experienced suffering, even if it's not the same suffering you've gone through. And sometimes God can feel like that person who doesn't get it, who's far removed from our pain. But if we look to Isaiah 53, verse 3, this is a prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus, and who he's to be like. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And we hear this verse a lot of times at Easter, this idea that like Jesus is the suffering servant. And he was destined to suffer, we see. And just as a human, he would have experienced some suffering in life, but where we see that suffering um, so tangibly is in his crucifixion. And if we look to Matthew 27, verses 45 to 46, in his final moments, Jesus cries out. So from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Sorry, my Hebrew is terrible. Um, Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is quoting our verse, Psalm 22. And he's not just doing this brilliant metaphorical kind of reference like, hey, that verse David wrote, that was all about me. Um, He is kind of doing that, but really though, He's saying this because this is his expression. This is what he's feeling. He is submerged in suffering in every sense of the word, physically, emotionally, psychologically. He is one who suffered greatly. Uh, There's a great sociologist who I'm a big fan of, Brene Brown. Um, And she says that, uh, talks about empathy and sympathy. And she talks about how they're often grouped together, but they're very different from each other. Empathy is a skill that can bring people together and make people feel included, while sympathy creates an uneven power dynamic and can lead to more isolation and disconnection. Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Why does this matter? I'll turn my page and I'll let you know. (laughs) Well, there's a... Has anyone heard of the Ballard Chalk Bomber? Yeah, so this is a person who goes around doing, like, really cool chalk art... Um, it's lovely. And uh, I came across this picture. I think it should be. I think we might have it. If not, that's okay. There's this great picture that they posted. Yeah. Uh, this one just posted yesterday on one of my Facebook groups. And I saw this and I thought, this is empathy. This is a picture of empathy. And so Jesus isn't the sympathetic buddy or the person with a million frustrating platitudes trying to make you feel better. But he suffered. And this is such a great picture of how he meets us. He stepped down from his place of power to be with us, to suffer with us. He joins us to a place where true empathy and connection happens. He understands what it is to be immersed in pain 
And because of that, his presence is a profound, deep, great gift to us. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a gift. But sometimes there's the moments when you realize how God is stuck with you. Through your yelling in the car, through your walking away from him, he's still there. What a gift. And because this God who suffered, who can empathize with us, because he dwells in us, our presence now becomes um, we bring that presence of Christ to those in our life. The night my family member was in hospital, a pastor from our church showed up. And I was really curious what he was going to say. At that point, I was sensing I might be called into pastoral ministry. So I was devastated on one hand, but the other part of me was like, okay, what's he going to say? Like, what's his approach going to be? And I'm waiting for him to come in with some eloquent words or some kind of, you know, make us feel better statement. And friends, he just stayed quiet. He didn't say a single word that whole night, except maybe hi and goodbye. He sat with us in silence. And it's then that I realized, yeah, what do you say in a moment like that? There's no words. In moments like that, there's just presence. And in that moment, having someone with us to remind us that we weren't alone, to remind us of God's presence, that was the biggest gift we could have asked for. And so as we sit with people, because as we know, suffering will come. It might come to us, it might come to our friends. As we sit with those in our life who suffer, one of the biggest things we can do is be a listening presence in their life. There's a great quote that says, listening is an act of love. And we can start listening. And sometimes when we're tempted to like, with our uncomfortability, <laughs> I kind of feel like dancing now. Um, <laughs> so we can listen. And our temptation might be to give, to avoid our uncomfortability, to give a word to wrap it up with a neat and tidy bow. But again, we pause and we listen and we listen, and we listen some more, and we listen to the voice of God in us. And when appropriate, and we feel as leading, we return that person to the larger story, the larger story that God is with them, and that he is redeeming all things. Because that's the big end of the story, right? The story right now is that there's suffering and God is with us. But that isn't the end, the end. The end, the end, is God is working to renew, to renew and restore us, to redeem us, to bring us into that happily ever after. It's not yet, but it's coming. And marketing and Netflix are telling me that Christmas is here. Because <laughs> now all the Christmas movies are showing up on Netflix. Um, and they've started doing these interesting like, spin-offs on the Lifetime, Hallmark ones. Um, but with this, with this season of Christmas comes this continual talk about the birth of Jesus. And I love this one translation of uh, one of the gospel passages about Jesus' birth. It says, Jesus moves into the neighborhood. And so at this time of year, we'll sing songs about Emmanuel, which we tr- often translate to God with us. But the literal translation is, with us, God. So not the distant, disconnected, sympathetic God, 
but the empathetic, present, with us God who is there for every single ounce of suffering, every single ounce of joy, and everything in between. And so as you walk through Christmas this season, my invitation for you is to just be brought back to that truth that you are met by the with us God. And he is there. And he is here now. And I'm going to invite the worship team up because I want to give us a chance to sit with some of this because I realize this might bring up different things for all of us. But I want to ask you, as the song is being played, to sit with this question. Where are the places in your life where you're desperate, where you're needy for Jesus to walk with you, for Jesus to be present with you? And so that question's going to pop up. It's up there right now. And so just as the song starts, sit with that question. Reflect on that for yourself. Where do you need Jesus to walk with you? And if you feel ready or led, join in with the song. This is such a beautiful song. We sang this a couple months ago at our MRJR Lament Night. It's, called, it's an old spiritual song called I Want Jesus to Walk With Me. And I just think this is such a lovely way for us to enter into some places of lament together, some places of maybe some grief, some places of processing with Jesus. But I'm also aware that some of you might need a little more con- extra companionship today based on maybe some stuff that got brought up through the video or through the sermon. And so we have a prayer team available today who's just going to be right up along here. They'll be standing right along the windows. If you need a little extra help, if you need prayer, friends, don't say no to that. I grew up in a church and we used to call our, our prayer team in that area where you'd go get prayed the mercy pool. And so mercy is available today. And if you're hungry for mercy go get prayer. They're going to be there during the song and also after the service. But let me pray and then we'll enter into this song. Lord Jesus, you came into the world as one of us and suffered as we do. As I go through the trials of life, help me to realize that you are with me at all times and in all things, that I have no secrets from you and that your loving grace enfolds me for eternity. In the security of your embrace, I pray. Amen.